and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Zoe Burnett and Dr Camilla Irvin, who are both part of the LGBTQ plus community. Zoe is an award-winning speaker, author, trainee counsellor at First Step CD and has lived experience of atypical anorexia. Camilla is a researcher and lecturer at the School of Psychology at the University of Lincoln, specialising in body image and eating disorders. Zoe and Camilla join me today for a very exciting double guest episode to discuss sexuality, eating disorders and body image for Pride Month. Hello, Zoe and Camilla. Hi. Hello, my sunshine. Double trouble. How are you both? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm just looking outside. It's really sunny today when we're recording this. I'll just keep looking outside going, oh, it's so beautiful. I keep looking at it going like, oh, God, no. I don't like hot. <laughs> Opposites. I think I've actually changed three times today because I'm so sweaty. Every <laughs> item of clothing I put on, I keep having to change. So I'd really wish it would cool down. Um, but that's British summer for you. Apparently, <laughs> yesterday, it was warmer here than Portugal. Oh, well, there you go. Brilliant. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for both joining me. Um I think this is like our third double episode and so I'm still not very used to having two people so do excuse me um, because I'm not quite used to it but I wondered if you guys wanted to start obviously today we're um, talking about sexuality body image and eating disorders so would you mind giving an, an overview maybe of your own sexuality and how your kind of in like where your interest came from in body image and eating disorders? Zoe and Stodd. <laughs> We're both looking at each other. We're both so polite. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, so obviously I have got lived experience of atypical anorexia. However, it's only been recently, if you like, that I've explored my sexuality a little bit more. I've always known I wasn't straight, but I've always tried to suppress it, hide it, I guess, um, because obviously 10 years ago it wasn't as accepted, shall we say, is what it is. Yep, still got a long way to go, but times are changing just not quick enough so I'd always try and suppress who I was hide myself deny everything and obviously that led to that low self-esteem which was a contributing not the whole reason for me as well but certainly a contributing factor to my struggles so yeah so now obviously fully recovered um I work with children young people with eating disorders over at first steps and I try and do as much as I can for the LGBTQ community around eating disorders, highlighting some of the individual struggles, the yeah individual circumstances that surround this topic, I guess. When when you talk about the suppression, do you think that did that have like a, a direct impact on the way that you saw your body and the way that you kind of felt existed in your body, or was it more that there were emotions or maybe both that kind of you were suppressing and therefore used the eating disorder to sort of communicate that something wasn't quite right but you couldn't put it into words yeah so obviously um I was bullied horrifically anyway at school but 
the desperate need to try and fit in if you're like oh my gosh I must like this boy and this boy and this that and the other mm-hmm. it's ignoring the fact that actually I was pansexual but just trying desperately to fit in with those peer groups and have the body that you know the boys wanted yeah it just I was just so desperate to fit in that I squashed everything about myself and then through losing myself I didn't know who I was what I was almost and it just heightens so many difficult emotions that of course then led out I guess or leaked out in an eating disorder. Thanks Zoe I have some questions to come back to but absolutely um, fine. <laughs> let Camilla introduce herself first. <laughs> um, so for me it's more of a new interest in terms of researching body image and eating disorders with the perspective of taking sexuality into consideration. Um, so that kind of stemmed from a dissertation student approaching me saying, hey, I have an idea for a research project. That's one of the projects that I told you about. Um, and then we kind of uh, started designing that and it just so happened. Another student approached me and said, hey, I have an idea as well. So we had two students doing two projects and with two different kind of styles. Uh, and then this year we had another student approach me saying, hey, I want to look at this topic again I thought all right well we can get more data for the quantitative project um if when, when it comes to like this this sort of personal thing I actually had a really good laugh with at, at Zoe's expense when I said Zoe are you about to out me um <laughs> on the podcast uh because, <laughs> because because I I identify as bisexual and I have for a very long time uh I just so happen to be married to a man um but it's not something that I feel like, oh, I need to tell people, I need to come out. I've never had a coming out. My family still doesn't know. They, they'll never listen to this anyway. Uh, they don't speak English. Uh, so, <laughs> so Zoe was mortified and I was having a really good laugh at her expense about outing me out. Um, it's not something that I hide um, at all. I don't, I don't think I ever had a situation where growing up um, it, created any body image issues for me as such um I actually spent a very long time thinking I never had body image issues personally uh but that's because I was a skinny person and a very athletic person and it wasn't until uh, I think my early 20s that I started actually gaining weight blah 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 and what happened was I was moving house and I was going through my diaries from my teenagehood and what do you find there? Me tracking food and me tracking my weight and complain about the fact that even though I have a massive six pack because I was an athlete, um, you had, I don't know, a teeny tiny bit of fat over the bottom bottom part of my abs. So I was freaking out about that sort of stupid thing, talking about how fat I am. And now I look at pictures of myself at 18, 19, 16, 15. And it's just a perfectly normally shaped girl, like there was nothing there. But I don't think at the time it was something that was particularly impacting me. Like I said, I don't have lived experience of an eating disorder. For me, it's a more of a academic interest. So I hope that kind of satisfies your question there. Yeah. Uh, went on a bit of a rant around about. <laughs> no, no, that definitely, definitely satisfies the question. I just want to ask, so you said you identify as bisexual, but you've never come out as bisexual. So 
Zoe, you mentioned about like you've been exploring your sexuality and kind of de- um, determined that you're pansexual. So is, is part of exploring it, like is that like a personal thing rather than kind of telling other people? It absolutely does make sense, bless you. Yeah, it, it is very personal. Um, I've always known that I wasn't straight, but again, I just didn't know I guess putting the label I think phrases just I just didn't know what um yes like the minute I am married to a man absolutely but just allowing myself to kind of say joining those conversations go oh actually I quite like this person or you know just being okay with that instead of just thinking oh I quite quite like them and trying to hide it just going oh yeah I quite like them does that make sense just Mm -hmm. being open with it being open and trying to have those conversations and luckily where obviously where I work at First Steps we are also open and honest and we have such a gorgeous team where I've been able to do that and say these things and not feel judged or anything so that's really helped as well the people in my life. Yeah absolutely And, and do you think that you know that sort of environment like you just said that lack of judgment do you think you know if you had the opposite of that environments that are judgmental or you know maybe don't understand or whatever do you think that sort of environment could play into the development of eating soda and body image struggles or you think it's a wider context than that it can a bit of both obviously it can of course play a role um that fear of rejection um being rejected by your friends and family you know that can cause that anxiety again leaking into that low self-esteem which can contribute to eating disorders um they might have already tried to express these feelings but been met with maybe even violence you know um which could even lead to pdsd which again is another vulnerability factor to an eating disorder any sorts of discrimination um maybe they've been bullied for it. again low self-esteem another factor for that eating soda so many different elements that it can tie into I guess yeah absolutely I, I think you know I think I've said this to you before obviously an eating disorder is not caused by a single factor yeah. but it does sound you know like there there could be a lot of like crossover um and Camilla, you mentioned um, kind of when you were doing your introduction at the start that you'd been doing some dissertation projects. Yeah. Um, what what were they particularly looking at? So one of the things that we were looking at was um, when it comes to uh, body image and research on women, there is some indication that women who identify as lesbian, women who identify as straight have different body image. But there is absolutely no consensus. Uh, so while there is some uh, some kind of train of thought there of uh, lesbian women are protected from things like objectification, male gaze, that sort of thing, via the community as well, that they are protected from the sort of heteronormative uh, standards of beauty and appearances in, in our society. Um, 
There are other studies that say that that's actually not the case because uh, there are additional sources of vulnerability that then place lesbian women at more risk. So things like minority stress, so something that uh, Zoe hinted at before. So minority stress being uh, basically uh, any stress experienced by a stigmatized minority group. Uh, either due to prejudice, harassment, discrimination, outright rejection, violence, microaggression, all of these lack of support. There is uh, so much that can cause this sort of chronic stress in a person who is part of a minority. So because of this sort of lack of consensus of either protected or not protected, um, uh, hint, spoiler alert, I think there is basically uh, if you put them all together on mass, it kind of uh, puts all women in the same kind of same place, uh, but just different vulnerability factors for different groups. But essentially what happened was this student wanted to look at it and she also noticed that when it came to perceptual body image, there wasn't research on that. And she also felt like the bisexual women were being overlooked. Um, so we're sitting there chatting, thinking, well, if you identify as bisexual and you have both attraction to men and women, um, how does that play out? Um, so that's why we decided to have this investigation of both attitudinal and perceptual body image in lesbian and bisexual and uh, straight women. So that that's where it kind of came from. It's just lack of knowledge, basically trying to fill in some gaps. What's the difference between attitudinal and perceptual body image? Okay, um, so attitudinal body image is to do with how you feel about your body, right? So essentially, um, we have four types of body image, kind of four components. Um, body image overall is a multidimensional construct, right? And there is not a singular definition of what actually body image is. Everybody has to define it on their own whenever we write uh, publications. But essentially, the attitudinal also referred to as affective is how you feel about your body. Quite often that's based on your perceptual body image and your perception of your body. So that's how you see your body size. Quite a lot of time it's to do with how good are you at judging the size of your body, your body parts. But then we also have the cognitive evaluative body image. So this is how you think about your body, any sort of conceptions or thoughts you have. And obviously that's tied to the affective and the feelings that you have. And lastly, we have behavioral. So this is how you act as a result of all of these things. So any sort of checking behaviors, grooming behaviors, hiding behaviors, that sort of stuff. So yeah, we looked at affective um, and uh, perceptual together. That's so interesting that because, you know, now you've explained all the different aspects of body image. I'm like, well, yeah, obviously there's all those mm. different types. But I think actually, you know, in instinctively, when I think of body image, I didn't think about it in those separate ways. So that that's really interesting. Um, and what did you did you find a difference, did you say? Or was it pretty much pretty much the same? So this is quite interesting. I actually wrote a big thing today because me doing maths. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't had the opportunity to actually combine the two data sets from this year and last year to, to see what happens. But I tried to kind of do uh, very uh, quick and quick and dirty uh, estimates. And essentially what happened was when we had our uh, groups of lesbian, bisexual and straight women, um, we did ask them for the BMI. We don't use it as any sort of indicator of health or anything like that. BMI is so that's my opinion on it. Um, 
But we do use it as an estimate of size because we're doing perception, we're doing size estimations, we need to have some sort of ability to, you know, compare it to the actual shape and size. So all our groups had the same sort of BMIs. Um, they were very similar. There were there was no group that was particularly high or particularly low. Then when we asked them to estimate their body size using this virtual model with a slider so as they move the slider the body becomes much smaller or much larger goes from uh, quite quite thin to quite fat um, and what happened was they all pretty much overestimated to the same extent right uh, so they, if, if we were to calculate in BMI units they were doing between 3 to 3.3 BMI units above what their actual BMI was right wow. Um, but then we asked them to also adjust the shape and size of the model to the shape and size they would like to have. So they're ideal. And then again, they were quite similar. Uh, when it came to the bisexual group, the uh, discrepancy between the actual current BMI and their ideal was the smallest and it was largest for straight women. Um, but when it comes to the lesbian population, they actually were not that far off from the straight women. And statistically speaking, none of these differences were significant. Wow. So while the kind of the means kind of indicate that there are these, there are these trends, there is nothing actually significant there. So then you start thinking about, OK, well, why aren't there the differences that we were expecting? Mm -hmm. So while you have to think about the sociocultural pressures all of these women will be experiencing the same sociocultural pressures then when it comes to for example straight women they will be experiencing uh, objectification uh, self-objectification they'll be uh, kind of aware of the male gaze uh, there is nothing wrong with wanting to be attractive to the people you want to be attractive to uh, but we know that there are certain things that do place women at uh, more risk and kind of there are these sort of vulnerability factors but then when it comes to the lesbian women and the bisexual women when you think about okay well they might reject this this male gaze they might uh, reject this objectification there are some some interesting things that are happening and that's what our qualitative study actually provided quite a lot of explanations so in the qualitative study they found that actually um, there was quite a bit of what we would call masking to an extent where the both the bisexual and the straight the, the lesbian women were trying not to uh, look too too much like whatever sexuality they identified with uh, so kind of almost like straight passing uh, because they were trying to avoid unwanted attention they wanted to avoid the objectification the fetishization the sexualization that they get otherwise they were trying to avoid any sort of comments and harassment or discrimination because of their sexuality so that was putting them at a particular risk and that's what was kind of making them fit in to the same kind of pressures that the straight women were falling under um i mean zoe zoe is nodding so i think I, i'm not talking <laughs> I'm not talking complete rubbish at this stage. Yeah, I just want to touch upon something that you've just said, um, mm -hmm. the avoiding fetish thing. The first thing that happened when I did originally say to someone, oh, you know, I'm pansexual, was, oh, I bet James loves that. Does that mean you can have a threesome? And just started asking really quite 
explicit questions almost that made me feel so uncomfortable. And, and that's objectification at its finest. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, okay, so I'm going back in my sort of box, so to, or back in the closet, so to speak, I guess. And I did, it took me ages again to try and, again, explore those feelings safely without having that fetish side almost and those yeah. comments just unjustified just go away leave me alone yeah so I mean we, we we had quite a few of the participants in the qualitative study mentioned this where they get oh can I watch oh can I join yeah. you in oh your boyfriend must love it that sort of stuff um and every single one of these participants just said how uncomfortable it made them feel like it made them feel dirty, it made them feel like an object, it made them feel like something that is there for the purpose of other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of brings around these sort of um, monitoring behaviours where they start paying more attention to how they look and how they present themselves so as to avoid that sort of commentary from other people. That's quite interesting because I was thinking then as you I've got down as one of my questions to ask Mm. you know do you think that there's like different body image standards um but it almost it almost sounds as though it's kind of the kind of expectations from people that are straight as to maybe what the the body type will be like as opposed to within the community I don't know if I'm reading that wrong (laughs) I mean, we we had quite a few participants talk about the stereotype looks, you know, butch, femme, lipstick, lesbian, all of that stuff. And it seems to be a very individualised experience for people. Uh, So it ranges from comments like, oh, but you don't look gay. uh, When uh, a lesbian woman says, oh, actually, I'm a lesbian. uh, To people telling butch lesbians, oh, well, then why don't you just own up to the fact that you're actually not a woman? which is a really crappy thing to say to somebody who does identify as a as a woman because you know you kind of adding this masculinity femininity issue to it all um so for some of our participants they were saying that they struggled to kind of match up to what people thought they should look like and that went for both the people within the community and outside of the community a couple of them for example said how much they hated pride uh, as in the, they hated the events because they felt like whenever they went there, because they didn't fall into any of the kind of visual stereotypes of a lesbian person, um, they were kind of not feeling like they were fitting in with their own people. Um, one of them was saying how, you know, I'm quite quiet and quite introverted. It's It's just not my crowd to be there out loud and I am proud of being a lesbian. I just don't see myself being on the street marching about it. And that brings that guilt of I'm not showing up for my people. So it's incredibly complicated. And then you add, like I said, this sort of masculinity, femininity issue, uh, and it complicated even further. Yeah, I just want to touch on something you just said there, like not looking gay, but then, Mm. okay, you can't be, you know, part of this community because you don't fit that box but I but you don't fit the box for being straight it's like I don't fit in any boxes and again that (laughs) just leads into all this pressure and again I keep coming back to it that going in on myself almost even more and yeah yeah and and that's the thing when when you think back to you know the body image being the sort of attitudes the feelings the thoughts and the behaviors if you have somebody 
being made feel insecure or sh ashamed of the way they look, the way they present themselves. It's going to make them feel some type of way in other areas. It's going to make them act in maybe not necessarily in regards to their body, but it might mean, for example, they will no longer go to that gay bar. They may start avoiding those particular people. Um, because of the fact that they just got some sort of experience out of it that was just unpleasant for them. And that can lead to isolation, which obviously leads to its own set of problems. <laughs> I, like I said, I'm trying not to say too much with any sort of certainty. Obviously, I'm looking at just three small studies with my stuff, but obviously I'm also keep in mind everything else all the other studies have found. Um, and one of the kind of worrying things, the things that really gets my heart, if I had one, um, <laughs> is <laughs> is that uh, is that estimate from Beats where they found that when it comes to barriers for help seeking, it seems that uh, people who are part of the LGBTQIA plus community uh, feel less want kind of comfortable or wanting to seek help or confident with seeking help than people who identify as straight. Um, so there is some sort of added layer also there where it's not just, you know, about people's individual experiences, but also about people's seeking kind of help seeking behaviours that is being affected. Just building on what you've just said, absolutely. Um, you know, in experiencing unique contributing factors, they may face you know find access for treatment and support a barrier almost um that lack of culturally competent treatment which mm. addresses the complexity of unique sexuality and gender identity issues um again that lack of support from family or friends and insignificant insufficient sorry mm. <laughs> insufficient eating disorder education among lgbtq research providers who are in the position to detect and intervene yeah there is there is this 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 thing where I remember reading a study. I can't remember who it was, when it was conducted. <laughs> I, I remember no other details other than the fact that this person went. It was a qualitative study. I can tell you that much. Um, the person went through five or six different therapists because of the sort of almost. Uh, compulsory heterosexism of every single one of those providers that they could not you know you don't have to necessarily uh, identify with the person's experience but at least to understand them and understand their impact they felt like they were not understood about why uh, this was actually a male participant who was saying this it was a gay male who was saying I was telling this Therapist, first of all, it was hard to find a male therapist because that's who they felt comfortable with. And then they felt like they were just uh, not getting through to them about their distress and the problems that they were having. And therefore, the suggestions of the therapist on how to address whatever problems they were facing were just not working because they were not purpose built. So they went through five or six before they actually found somebody who was um, informed in uh, basically helping any sort of minorities you know do you think the barrier is I mean you've kind of answered this but I guess I'll ask anyway is is it sort of an internalized stigma maybe or you know is it just that there's a lack of professionals out there that actually 
maybe understand or can provide the support that's actually needed. Yeah. It have been lived experience, uh, but what it does have to be, you know, there are so many CPD courses. There is so much literature out there uh, that for for anybody who's a practitioner to to not inform themselves in order to be able to help. Uh, so many people because you know what we, we keep saying you know oh sexual minority um when you add the bisexual lesbian women together in my studies they 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 are a larger group than the straight women so who's a minority now um <laughs> so, so really if, if, if you were to 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 think about how many people you are therefore not prepared to support it's the same as how many people are out there providing uh treatment who are not prepared to work with people in terms of any sort of neurodivergence. Um, so it's it's all about making sure that we have providers out there that actually can spend time on educating themselves and going to the CPD courses um, and going to training and making sure that, you know, services are run by people who actually put value in this stuff and are willing to go and train them and give them a half day off to send them to training or something rather than bulk up the workloads. Um, horror stories I could tell you from all sorts of different services and industry and charities and whatnot of people being completely overworked and not able to go to these sorts of things. But yeah, we just need to make sure that people are and kind of prepared same as you know with with Zoe Zoe's working with kids and young people because that's something she has experience with right if you had another person join Zoe's team and you tell them okay now go work with these kids and young people and they haven't had any training on it how good of a job are they going to do really mm -hmm. yeah and Absolutely. it goes for everything else just bringing that back, you said about horror stories, you know what, I am so, I'm just going to toot first steps trumpet here, forgive me. <laughs> but one of the things that I do love about working first steps is we do have, we, we are able to, you know, go on these trainings, educate each other. Um, Obviously, I think quite a large proportion of us at first steps are part of the LGBTQ plus community. So we kind of, so we're able to recognise, again, those unique challenges that these individuals might face um like what we spoke about earlier again understanding some of the more complex side of things and yeah like you said just educating ourselves we have like a little you know there's constantly books going around in a group chat I've, oh my gosh read this one read that one and um i put one in there the other day oh i lost it it's on the floor um it's a teenage um book to help you through identifying yourself almost and exploring your sexuality if you are questioning so just resources like that knowing what resources are out there what can help the people you're working with and yeah recognizing the every individual person's journey may well be very different but taking that person-centered approach and and that feels you know that feels so important across the board in general yeah. in terms yeah. of the person-centered approach um and I think we need so much more of that because it's just it doesn't exist. It's very much, you know, there's a category and, and you fit into that. Um, and I guess when I was I was just thinking then about, um, you know, you, you mentioned a few resources there. But if there are, you know, clinicians listening or, or anybody that kind of wants to learn more. Are there places that you'd recommend that they could go um, to learn more? 
Yeah, so I was trying to find a book because I couldn't remember <laughs> the name of it. Um, Gender Identity Workbook for Teens, Practical Exercises to Navigate Your Exploration, Support Your Journey and Celebrate Who You Are. Um, I pull this out quite a lot during my sessions, to be honest, because there's quite a nice few little activities, fun icebreakers to, you know, get to know your clients a little bit. But also there's an organisation called Think to Speak, um, which do a lot of work with, again, everyone from the LGBTQ community who may be struggling with mental health, not just eating disorders, but all mental health. So they are a really good resource to have, basically. And keep your eyes out at first steps because we're, we're, we're yeah, maybe we're doing some stuff in the pipeline. <laughs> it's in the pipeline, so keep your eyes on, keep your eyes on things. Yeah, and then you've got the classic, you know, rainbow project that that's kind of, of uh, like a first Stone stop for everybody. Stonewall as well. Um, we're doing this... some amazing work. Sorry, doing some amazing work at the minute around obviously trying to ban conversion therapy because mm. um, they banned it half in England, haven't they? But not yeah. for trans, which. It, uh, <laughs> There's angry words that I want to say that I can't, but frustration, I think. Yeah. yeah. I have remembered what I wanted to ask earlier. Oh, uh, that's it came back. Very <laughs> good. Um, it basically just popped into my head when we were talking about um, when you were talking about kind of exploring your sexuality, and I was, I it just made me think about um in an eating disorder how your identity can kind of completely you know it can feel like you don't have one because it's an eating disorder so my kind of I don't know how I want to ask it but I'm going to kind of say what I'm thinking okay. so basically what I'm thinking is that when um, an individual has an eating disorder often their identity is just the eating disorder and it's completely engulfed by that so then if somebody's exploring their sexuality I would imagine that an eating disorder could potentially completely envelope that as well. Um, and I guess what I wanted to ask is, you know, have either of you heard anybody have experience of that? And then when it comes to sort of recovering from the eating disorder, has it then been like a whole, oh, my God, I've now got all of this to explore as well because I've been suppressing it all for so long? A little bit. It was more excitement, I guess, because it was through going through recovery and um, once I'd fully recovered, I was actually able to, I had brain space, <laughs> I guess, mm -hmm. to explore parts of my personality that I that I had suppressed. Because like you said, when you are in the, the warp, I guess, that tornado of a hurricane, that tornado of an eating disorder, it's all you can <laughs> think about is food, shape, weight, oh my gosh, this, that and the other. It does, like you said, it does become your identity. So only once... I started that recovery journey. That confidence grew a little bit. Um, my self-esteem raised. And then I was able to explore who I really was. That's really, I'm so, it's so nice as well that you said excited. Um, rather than kind of it being like a, you know, a, a very daunting process. I guess in a flip side, and maybe I'm asking the same question again, but do you think people might have an experience of using the eating disorder to sort of mask all of that so that they they don't have to think about it or maybe it's something that they're uncomfortable because they've not gone through so it's like a I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a thing that they're trying to keep the eating disorder alive in order to not process all of that yes it's a possibility 
it absolutely is possible something to you know just have in the back of your mind almost as a practitioner it's something that I may keep in the back of my mind um yeah again like you said that the fear oh my gosh they're gonna the anxiety again I keep coming back to it the oh the unique challenges that might have already faced oh my gosh they're gonna do it again so I'm just gonna keep doing this because this 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 is who I am eating sort of person not not anything else please leave me alone sort of thing so yeah it might be that they cling on to that eating disorder so they don't feel I was gonna say safe but mm, train of thoughts false <laughs> <laughs> sense of safety thank you yes yeah that's the words I was after thank you Camilla yeah, yeah I, I do remember talking to somebody else who said um for them it was a distraction um, yeah but it, it's a very individualized experience as to what exactly it does for people and I suppose maybe to an extent it depends on you know what stage in life you are when it happens regardless of age um but we do see quite a lot of difference in like the stats reported in terms of transitional events so things like puberty or joining workforce or going into university having babies uh, marriages divorces so kind of like the stressful events on top of that um so a lot of them when you think about them they are quite identity forming so you know becoming a grown-up becoming a student uh, or an adult or becoming a husband or a wife or whoever uh, or you know becoming single again so it could be related to identity and uh, figuring out your identity in terms of your sexuality and that being connected to an eating disorder why not seems kind of logical that just, they will be related just going on something that just popped in my head there yeah um you said obviously going through puberty and things like that of course if you identify as like non-binary or trans that is it's terrifying anyway let's face it but oh my goodness even more so for those members of the community black community and if you um identify as a man let's say then all of a sudden you get your periods that is everything you're yes yeah, so hard to try and navigate through and again allowing the individual to explain how they're feeling and also flip side um if you identify as a woman you may try and restrict in order to lower testosterone levels things like that so it's yeah tricky one to navigate through very tricky yeah that, that, that's that's the whole thing with um intersectionality isn't it yeah where you have to consider multiple sources all at the same time um you, you can't look at them really in isolation and uh, yeah it's not just all oh, your sexuality is also your gender and also all of the other identities and roles that you may have um that could impact a person's not just not, and we're not just talking in terms of you know people in risk of eating disorder we are talking everybody has body image yeah um and pretty much looking at my data nobody's happy um so, <laughs> so, we, so we need we need uh, more body kind of neutrality some more body positivity uh we need more spaces for everybody to kind of feel appreciative of what the body can cannot do why not um so we need kind of 
a little bit more focus on the good stuff. We need the understanding of the stuff that can cause trouble, but we also need to emphasize the things that can be kind of forceful positive change as well from that end. Rather than just undoing the bad stuff, we need to do more on the good stuff. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Positivity. Um I, I can I completely agree. I think um I mean like what you were saying Zoe I think is really interesting um about um individuals that are trans because I can imagine that that would pose a situation of trying to manipulate your body to be a certain you know to fit a certain stereotype or um to fit a certain body type um and I feel like in that situation um you know what you were saying earlier about not seeking support that in itself would feel like a very isolating experience and not reaching out for that support um I can imagine would mean you know those effects that's going on for a lot longer maybe than um you know maybe somebody if they were straight and then were reaching out for support um so I think like you said there's so many different factors to consider um but also I really liked what you said Camilla about you know focusing on the kind of positive things and you know what can we do more of um and I guess you know that might be a nice way to kind of round up this episode um in terms okay. of thinking about you know what you guys think we could do more of to support people that are experiencing what we've been discussing today um you know or you know also what people can do for themselves as well as the external support and that might be as clinicians or as family or friends or whatever so in terms of uh let's go through it systematically in terms of the clinicians um we need them to not just understand uh you know the edward specialism book continue learning so they need more yes. in terms of training on how to work with uh, lgbtqia plus populations uh but also we need them to have sort of further training and uh, undoing of some other biases. Um, so, you know, like health at every size principles should be looked into uh, that can kind of feed into the body neutrality, body positivity, uh, because we are here talking about things like intuitive eating encouragement, joyful movement encouragement, um, having people work on if you can't do body acceptance, do body appreciation, do body functionality, uh, do self-compassion at least. And unless a practitioner learns how to do these things and teach them to the people they are working with, then how are they going to do that? Um, and same goes for literally anybody else who's listening. If if anybody's interested in things like intuitive eating, joyful movement, um, self-compassionate kind of self-compassionate and um, compassionate care for yourself um five googles uh and you will find everything you need to know uh but watch out for uh people who may be kind of misleading a little but there is that there um but yeah that, that's that's what i always tell everybody body functionality self-compassion joyful movement do some yoga go for a walk because you want to not because you have to to burn off a cookie or something just enjoy it Happiness. Yeah, just following on from what you said, um, as a professional, I feel, again, we we never stop learning. 
Of course we don't. And particularly with this, it's things ch things are changing quite quickly. So it's a case of, you know, making it your mission, making it your duty of care, I guess, to keep on top of the latest articles, keep reading those latest research papers, keep um, Dr. <laughs> Come on over here to come and share with us what's being explored, what her finding are, working with academics as well as people with that lived experience and collaborating. Mm, yeah, that's, that's, that's huge. That's huge. Um, there is, I think, a little bit of a, still, still a little bit of a divide and not enough collaborative efforts yeah. between practitioners and hands-on people and clinicians and uh, the people who are doing the research in institutions. So there needs to be a little bit more collaboration. Plus, we need more lived experience, more people who actually have been through things working like either in charities or in the NHS or at universities or whatever, um, just so we can exchange information and learn from each other. Um, I one, one of the things that I've learned, this is how I met Zoe quite recently, is uh, the involvement of people in research, not not just as participants, but in the design of research and in deciding what it is that we should be looking at and how we should be looking at it mm. by involving the people who have experienced it or are currently experiencing it rather than just sitting there going like well I think this is where the uh, literature is telling me to go well go and check um, and find out so yeah I, I definitely agree we need to all kind of talk more um, be a bit more mindful and uh, support each other really oh. Yeah, collaboration, listening, just yeah. listening to yeah. everybody and everyone's experiences and just combining it all together to create that wraparound care, that support that's desperately mm. needed, I guess. Wraparound care, I like that one. Logically, it makes sense, doesn't it, to involve service users in the development of new services because at the end of the day, they're people that are going to be using them. Um, but I, I agree I think it's something that's definitely not used as much as it should um so yeah I think that's a great point and and like you say collaborating and just getting everybody's you know as many voices as possible heard um I think can can be really useful and then in terms of I guess supporting friends and, and family members would you guys what do you guys think about that um I always tell people to be the safe person. Um, it's not about telling people what they should be doing uh, and, and nagging them as such. It's about making sure that they know that when they're ready, they can approach you and that you will be there and you will support them. Um, so that's in terms of people with, you know, diagnosable issues that might need to be taken to a professional. In terms of everybody else, um if you are a parent and you're listening chuck out the weight in your bathroom and write a letter to your school telling them that they are not allowed to weigh your child i could rant about that topic quite a lot we have some research it's incredibly harmful uh, do not talk about people's appearances in negative manner don't talk about your own body in a negative manner um don't talk about food as good or bad in front of kids uh um kind of if you are thinking about 
engaging in exercise, you know, it's not supposed to be a punishment for you or your child or your teenager or your partner. It's supposed to be enjoyable. You're supposed to enjoy to move your body. If you don't enjoy the gym, find something else you like. Might be swimming, might be dancing, might be walking the dog. Don't have a dog, go get one. Um, so <laughs> so it, it, it's just about kind of taking away from looking after your body for the appearance sake is is it healthy and again healthy does not equal the size of your body or the way it looks you cannot judge a person's health by its by the way it looks um so if you kind of add all of these bits and bobs together um it might actually work to develop a, a healthy relationship with not just a person's body but the diet the things that they eat uh, the way they move their body um, and they just will have this knock-on effect on other things in their life really. I have a distinct memory of doing a podcast with you Zoe and I can't remember what you called it but you were talking about um, like joyful movement and stuff like that and you said that you found something on YouTube that was like Zumba to like it's like emo Zumba for, like green days and honestly that that thought pops into my head it must be once a week because I just think that's absolutely brilliant nothing like angry air guitar to get yeah. those feelings of frustration yeah. out brilliant. absolutely yeah. yeah I mean if it's enjoyable if it's enjoyable then that's it are you moving and enjoying it done yeah yeah it's literally it um I have not heard about emo uh, emo Zumba. I think I think we all need to try it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm dear. going to see Green Day on Friday, so oh. I need to get my uh, emo Zumba and oh. Fallout Boy. Actually, it's Green Day, Fallout Boy, and Weezer. So, oh my god, I'll be uh, I'll be doing a lot of joyful movement there. Nice winning. Nice. <laughs> Hope you enjoy. Thank you. Um, and then I guess finally just one more little point um, because I did say this when I said about support just in terms of supporting yourself um, what do you guys think kind of more positive things there that can be done self-help do you mean sort of yeah I guess, I guess just things you can do for yourself that um, are supportive in, in this context for me, it's very similar. Mm. for me it's very similar to all the other things that mm-hmm. I said before you know um, but I, I, I do think that if if a person has tried you know all the other things and they just it's still not working then yeah any sort of guided self-help if not, then maybe try and find some additional support. Um, if you end up on a long NHS waiting list, there are other organisations like First Steps, like Beat, that can try and support you through that. There's private people out there providing support, uh, private counsellors and therapists. So there is a lot that could be done, but obviously it could be limited by financial uh, constraints obviously the one thing i'll say is um find your cheerleaders mm. i know it's cheesy <laughs> but i always describe like you no matter who i talk to i always say you have two sets two sort of people in your life you've got your cheerleaders and your mood hoovers 
you move to the other ones that just, you know, you know, you know exactly what I mean, don't you? Just, no. You say something and they just make you feel worse. They drain that that energy out of you. They drain who you are almost. And your cheerleaders are the ones that are cheering you on, picking you up when, you've, when you don't even realise you're falling. They'll big you up in a room full of people when you're not even there. You know, find those cheerleaders, find the people that, just like you said earlier, Camilla, those safe people, the mm. people that you can talk to that do ask you those open questions and ask you things like, what do you need right now? What mm. do you need? Yeah. Find your cheerleaders and use them because they will not mind. <laughs> They'd rather you ask. I love that. The world needs more cheerleaders and Absolutely. less mood hoovers. Mood hoovers, <laughs> like you say, it, I've never heard of that before, but it's so good because I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Yeah. literally sucks the life out of you yeah exactly exactly well thank you both so much um it's been wonderful to speak to you both um and thank you for all the insight and knowledge that you've given us um if people want to find out some more about you or you know the work that you're both doing whereabouts can they go twitter <laughs> <laughs> good yep any uh, have you got a username um yeah so i'm at dr k irvine uh irvine is i-r-v-i-n-e um and uh, google scholar i suppose yeah where my publications live yeah your research is phenomenal i must say and it's oh stop it <laughs> <laughs> we do work quite closely together and she's just you know some of the things that um you guys are writing about at the minute down at university of lincoln is just I can't wait to see where this leads. I've got so many papers to write this summer. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to find a time. <laughs> okay, well, at Owen Zoe, where can they find you? I'm known as Barefoot Rebel, not because I have a weird foot fetish, but because I've got a massive anxiety disorder. So when I'm doing talks and things like this, I'm barefoot so I can like connect to the ground. I swear I'm not some weirdo um, yeah you can find me on instagram twitter and also do check out first steps website keep an eye on it because we are you know we're working hard so if you do have any ideas as well pop us an email you know we, we listen to our service users absolutely amazing well thank you both so much um i hope that that was as enjoyable for you as it was for me um and yeah really appreciate oh, it thank you we could go on for hours and we do uh, instead, <laughs> of, instead of coffee shops instead of bars we do brilliant thank you so much thank oh. you lovely if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.